what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Leo Igwe is a Nigerian human rights advocate and humanist activist. He plays a leading role in the Nigerian humanist movement and is known for his relentless campaigning against the impact of witchcraft-related persecutions in particular. This has led many times to harassment, attack and prosecution. He's a research fellow of the James Randi Educational Foundation, where he works towards the goal of responding to what he sees as the deleterious effects of superstition, advancing scepticism in Africa and around the world. And he's recently been elected to the board of Humanist International and is a great and long-term friend of Humanist UK. Leo, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you're the first, um, how can I put it, professional humanist that we've had uh, so far in this series. So we've interviewed um, also scientists and uh, actors and others who have also been humanists. But you're the first person that I'm getting to speak to who really has dedicated quite a lot of their time and life to humanist activism as such. Is this something that you were raised in? Is it part of your family background or did you come to this work in some other way? Okay, well, I, I think um, I was uh, raised a Catholic and I, I was sent to Catholic seminaries and I uh, was training to be a priest. Um, but I think that in the course of that training, uh, I had issues with religion and uh, the religious worldview. And if these, those issues, doubts about religious teachings, uh, questionable religious rituals, sometimes very harmful, uh, not just to adults, but also to children, uh, that drove me, that inspired me to uh, start thinking about an alternative. Yes, because as I was growing up, I was made to understand that there was no alternative to religion. Yeah, just find a way to be religious, period. Yeah, so even if you are doubting, there's a tendency to uh, they encourage you to pray. You know, just pray harder so that the doubts <laughs> will go away. You know, so you keep struggling in, 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 with, with the whole idea of religion. So it was while I was there, I just felt, but why, why, why is there no alternative? And in the course of my reading, of course, I read about uh, humanism as a philosophy, but they were presented in a way as if it's a, a corrupting way of life, a corrupting way of looking at the world. And they, of course, try to present the religious view as the perfect way. So however you try to look for alternative, you just eventually have to return to religion. So, but I was deeply dissatisfied you know, with the religious uh, outlook and that made me, uh, I decided, I said, okay, let me explore an alternative and let me dedicate, instead of dedicating my life to serving God, in quote, let me dedicate my life to serving humanity. So I think it was when I made that switch uh, that every other thing made sense in terms of uh, humanist activism or what you call professional humanism as a case, maybe. Yes. So you said that 
one of the things that started you off in this direction was the feeling that harm was being caused, harm was being caused to children, harm was being caused to women, and that you know you wanted to seek out the avoidance of harm. Was that the most important thing to you? Yes, it, it, of course it was very important to me because, um, like I said, I, I confronted these situations, situations where innocent people, yes, innocent people, we are just either uh, branded witches or wizards, or they're branded to be involved in some occult uh, activities, or they are branded to be possessed. Sometimes sick people, people who are, you know, who had some health issues, they are tortured and maltreated because they are believed to be possessed. In other words, the devil has decided to relocate, or the demons have tried to relocate you know, in the person's body, mm. operating from there. And as a result, the person is being tortured. Look, th these are people ordinary who deserve care, who need to be taken care of. But they are not maltreated because they have believed that their health problem is actually a sign of, the, of, of devil possession. So I found this very unsatisfactory. And that is why I kept on exploring uh, the, the rationalist alternative and, of course, the compassion that goes with a rationalist approach to life. So it's both sides, really, what you're saying, is that you saw, you were unsatisfied with the explanation, you thought it wasn't, it wasn't right, but that really began for you with compassion, compassion for the suffering that you were seeing and, and wanting to avoid that harm. Yeah. Yes, yes. Because what happens is that, you know, religious interpretation of, of the world, re religious interpretation of health problems, they're not just, they're not benign. As some people, some people will say they were benign superstition. I said, well, maybe when you sit somewhere you're in the comfort of your bedroom, you might think that this is benign. But when you see how this interfaces with people's life, especially vulnerable people, elderly people, people who are very sick, you will not know that superstition is not as benign as you people might think. It can really is can really motivate people to commit atrocities with impunity. Again, mm. there's this idea that when they do it, they think they have done the right thing and they don't care about the law. They don't care about any human decency. They don't care about human rights. Now, it is that impunity that goes with religious interpretation, occult, magical interpretation, supernatural interpretation of our day-to-day -day problems that I really found you know, very, uh, very disgusting, and uh, and that ha attracted me, you know, to the uh, the naturalistic, the rationalist view of life. And like I said, the compassion that comes when you apply rationalist interpretation to situations people ordinarily attribute to what you can call irrational or or supernatural entities or agencies. You said there that um, you, you, in what you were just saying, you addressed a sort of um, uh, an imaginary person and said, you know, from, from your position of comfort, maybe you can just see superstition is harmless, um, but actually it's causing all these uh, problems. Who were you addressing then? Were you talking to people who don't take this uh, topic as seriously as you, as you think they should? Were you talking to people maybe outside of Nigeria? Were you talking to... Who, who, who were you... Uh, I'm disputing well, with that. <laughs> well, I, well, well, I'm talking to so many people. Sometimes there are some people who have this impression that, yeah, but there are benign superstitions. These are sometimes people maybe who live in the West and uh, 
who mm. are not so close to the harshness of reality, reality of situations where superstition is used to abuse, to maim, to destroy lives and property of other people. Or again, people in Africa sometimes who, who try to um, uh, present those who challenge uh, uh, religion-based abuses, superstition-based abuses, who try to brand them as extremists or fundamentalists. In other words, who try, who try to undermine the very important, very fundamental campaign in terms of trying to address the evil, the destruction, the savagery that is often unleashed in situations where people are consumed by religious extremist ideas and superstitious beliefs. So they try to create this, this impression that, look, but they, you know, this, some of these superstitions, you know, they are not, in quote, as harmful as you present them. Look, something that is irrational is irrational. Yes. And at the level of thinking, you might, you might say, yeah, you know, it's comforting, like some people say, comforting superstitions. Okay. But when this intersects with solutions to problems like ailment, explaining misfortune, now you can see that comforting superstitions are not as comforting as people present them. They are poisonous, they are destructive, and they drain their compassion in human hearts. Look, human beings are capable of very kind, compassionate acts. They are also capable of very cruel acts. Now, but when religion comes in and superstition comes in, it has a way of draining their sense of compassion and then unleashing imaginable sense of cruelty from a human being who ordinarily would have been very caring and compassionate. You've done a lot of work in um, exposing the harm that's done to children and other vulnerable people when they're accused of witchcraft um, or um, you know, being possessed um, by different spirits or whatever. Is, is that the, 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 one of the most obvious harms that you're thinking of? Yes, that's what yeah. I've done. That's one of them yeah. because, and I just want to tell you that yesterday, after about seven months making telephone calls, I got pictures of two children, about three, three years, another one seven, who were lynched in Plateau State in central Nigeria. Now, look at what happened. Somebody was ill and they took the person to a private hospital. Here in Nigeria, many of our hospitals are just buildings, not hospitals per se, because they don't have access to medicine, they don't have enough medicine, or they don't have the personnel. So when people are taken there, sometimes they, they don't get the care they needed. And what they do is that they start imagining that there could be something spiritual about their ailment. And of course, we have so many pastors and spiritualists and imams and malams who are always ready to market the supernatural narratives to them. So what happens is that a family relative came back from the hospital and went to one of the houses and took this boy about seven years and the girl about three and took them to the hospital. Look, took them to private hospital and urged them to heal the man. This is somebody who is already in the hospital, and there are doctors attending to him. Now, the, 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 the boy said he didn't know anything about the ailment. So they dragged this boy to the village square. An evangelist came, 
with uh, gasoline or what we call in Nigeria fuel, and um, and threatened to set the children ablaze if they didn't confess. And uh, somebody took the fuel at the, in the process, poured it on the on the two two children, and another person lighted the match and set them ablaze. And the, the, the pictures are with me. So it's not like I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, this happened uh, maybe 10 years ago or 100 years ago. Yeah. No. I'm yeah. talking about pictures I received yesterday from Plateau State in central Nigeria. Now, I was asking them, I said, what did these children do? Nobody has an explanation. Oh, they said that, uh, you know, they were practicing witchcraft. What do you mean by witchcraft? Oh, they made this man ill. How did they make them ill? People start speaking from both sides of their mouth. As soon as you try to question them hard, when they have defaced, destroyed, maimed a child, two children, burnt them severely from head to their body. So what happens is that this is the kind of horrifying images we get frequently. And when you ask people, they will tell you, oh, it's witchcraft. Or oh, are you saying witches don't exist? Or are you saying God doesn't exist? Are you saying demons doesn't exist? They go into all sorts of questions looking for a way to justify you know, what is actually an atrocity. So yeah. this is, this is you know, partly what I was alluding when I was talking about the power, the vicious impact of superstitious and supernatural beliefs. In your work and in, in interviews, other interviews that you've done, and we've discussed it actually just personally, you and I, you've sometimes accused those, um, especially in the West, actually, who, who censor criticism of religion as essentially enabling this sort of harm to happen. Is that something that you truly believe? Yes. Look, all those who treat with little or no care, those who think that yeah, religion shouldn't be criticized. Or who try to discourage the criticism of religion are indirectly supporting the harm being done in the name of religion, or in the name of superstition, or in the name of God. Look, they are doing us a lot of harm. Now, I'm going to also tell you about another experience I had. I was among the few very few, there were about four of us, you know, who came out opposing the anti-same-sex marriage bill that was eventually signed into law in Nigeria. Now, yes. the first time we went for a public hearing, yes, there were very few of us that came to oppose uh, um, uh, that bill. Uh, in other words, we, we thought that the bill was unwarranted, you know, was not compatible with human rights and democracy and all that. So mm. um, in the course of the hearing, a lot of people were given opportunities to speak. And it came to this guy who is a Muslim scholar. And you know what he said? He said, look, look, that uh, under Sharia law, there, that there was no debate when it comes to homosexuality. There was no debate. So there was not an issue of trying to know whether should we pass or not pass this law. And he now made a statement. He said, look, that there are few homosexuals around that they should be rounded up and killed. Yeah. You see? You know, nobody said anything. Yeah. You know, nobody said anything. You know, when people say things like that, and they call themselves religious scholars or priests or pastors, people keep quiet. Now, if, for instance, I as a humanist, I, if I come there, I say, look, 
Muslim terrorists and Muslim uh, bloodletters have been killing and maiming uh, uh, Nigerians or maiming uh, foreigners uh, all over the world. Maybe all the Muslims should be rounded up and killed. I want to tell you that hell will let loose. I'll be branded a criminal. People will even go after me and kill me. So there is this kind of free pass we give religion and religious proposition. And that is why we are where we are today. So the only way we can begin to address what is actually a huge threat to humanity and to the world is by encouraging critical evaluation of religious teachings, positions, and beliefs. So when some people try to discourage that or try to censor criticism of religion will try to make us understand that those who are doing it are troublemakers, and uh, they are offending the sensibilities of religious people, they are inciting hatred and all that. They are indirectly endorsing some of these outrageous activities, outrageous positions that are often taken by religious, uh, religious scholars and institutions. We've spoken quite a lot there about... Uh religion uh, more than I think uh, in some other uh, episodes of this podcast but I think that makes sense because obviously um, a lot of your work in a highly religious environment um, is uh, work in reaction isn't it to the to the harm as you say yes. um, done by religions um, but if we speak more about the positive aspects of humanism I was interested in a, a TED talk that you gave uh, a few years ago um, that you express a very strong belief in the the potential of human beings to make change. Yeah. And you said that that had been inspired in part by your own parents. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that they were Catholics if you were raised in a Catholic yes. yeah. uh, environment. So how did you, how did you come to have this belief in, as it were, the, you know, the transformative possibilities of human agency, either from them or, or more generally? Yeah, well, the, the thing is this. I was inspired by their lives. I was inspired by the efforts they made to train us, to expose us to life. But of course, I do not, I'm not guided and dictated by their own worldview, straightly. So, so that is, that is the, you know, I want us to make that distinction. Um, for instance, my parents were born traditional religionists. So, but in the course of trying to get education, they got converted uh, and um, they became Catholics. Mm. And of course, when we were born, we were, I was born into a Catholic setting and they tried to bring me up the Catholic way. And like I used to tell them and I used to tell other people, my parents made a switch based on the circumstances of their own time and their own understanding and so many issues. I also have to make my own switch based on my own understanding and, 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 the, and the issues and how I try to look at, look at the world. But, oh, so your parents were raised with traditional African religion and yes. converted to Catholicism. I see. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you see, so yeah. they they changed. They made that change, and which is very important. Which is very important. It is important that you know number one that they that they made the change based on what they thought was right or true or moral, as the case may be. And it is important that this process continues. Like what we have. Let me digress a bit. What we have in this situation today in some parts of Nigeria is that when you are born into a religion, and in this case Islam, you are told you cannot change. You cannot leave because it is apostasy and it is a crime. 
And if they don't get after you legally, they go after you through social sanctions. And, and as we are seeing in the case of our, of our, of our, of our colleague, Mubarak. So what I'm saying there is that despite all the religious encumbrances, my parents worked hard. They believed in hard work. So, and this is one of the things I drew from it. So that despite the fact that, well, they prayed and all that, but there was this belief in hard work, in making, making efforts, in trying, and in, in not just resigning to the world as it is, but striving to see how you can change the world to be as you would like it to be. So that was why they gave us education that they never had. And they made us to explore opportunities they never had. And so we are where we are today because of that adventurous spirit, that explorative tendency, that idea to look over the board, over the board in terms of their own religious orientation, their own cultural understanding, their own uh, ambitions and careers and all that. So they made us now, we now stood on their shoulders and now we, we could now see higher, we could now see better as the case may be. So this is, this is an inspiration I drew from them. And that is why I, we, we, there's a need for us to keep encouraging such a world where coming generations could change their beliefs based on the realities of the time. They should not be persecuted. They should not be imprisoned or jailed for expressing ideas freely. Just like today, I used to tell my parents, I said, the world I'm living today is different from the world you lived. So how can we have that in terms of future generations if we don't allow them to explore new ideas, new understanding, and new possibilities? So I drew that inspiration as I was growing up from them in terms of hard work and ability to look at the world and try hard to change it and make it suit my own idea of how, how, the life, how life should be and how the world should be. That sense of progress, that sense of sort of ever expanding horizons and standing on the shoulders of those that went before us to make that progress, is that something that you have high hopes for in Nigeria today? Yes, it is always, when it, when it comes to hopes and Nigeria, I'm always very cautious because sometimes my country moves two steps forward, three steps backward, or, you know, keep, they keep moving back and, forth, back and forth, depending on where you are looking at it and how you are looking at it. But what happens is this. I still have this, what I can call impregnable sense of optimism. Yes, that no matter what happens, in spite of all the dark and you know, uh, uh, um, difficulties and challenges, I still think that Nigeria will make progress. But of course, there will be costs, there will be prizes to pay, like as we are saying today. And it has always been the case. When I was studying in Germany, they were telling me about the 30 years war. Yeah, in, in Germany <laughs> and all that. So, yeah. And I was imagining 30 years, okay, remove 30 years from my life now, I'll be left with about 20, okay? So I can imagine what you call 30 years war. What are people fighting? How much this, the scale of destruction? Look at the world wars. Look at a lot of tragic situations human beings have gone through. Look at the Rwandan genocide. So what I'm saying here is this. In spite of the dark and destructive situation, killings, fighting, I mean, imprisoning somebody just because the person made a comment on Facebook, something that sounds very outrageous, Killing somebody because the person said something critical of your faith. 
and you ask yourself, what is going on? I still have this sense that that, uh, that act of human history, of humanity, we still keep bending just towards justice, towards progress. Yeah, it just like, just like you see the second hand, it shakes as it moves. It shakes, but it keeps moving towards that progress. So that is the way I look at it. So that even though it, it appears that things are very bad and things are very, uh, um, things are seen people find it, people might want to despair and say, look, how can Nigeria make it with all this mess around? How can Africans make it with this basket situation in terms of their problems? There's still this feeling I have that at the end of the day, like the second hand, it keeps moving and shaking towards progress, towards betterment, towards development. That is what I have seen, even in my own life, you know, with my short life. And let me give you an example, drawing from our professional humanism, as you mentioned initially. In the 90s, when I started uh, uh, the Nigerian Humanist Movement, we, we used to write letters. It used to take three months before we get a reply to one letter. So when you write a letter, you just like go on holiday. You just go, you just forget it, you know. So because it has to take a while before you get feedback. But what is it today? Today it takes a second. Sometimes I write a letter before I could just uh, check my inbox again. The reply is already waiting for me, okay? So you can see that. Now imagine something that takes three months now taking you a second. Is that not progress? It is. And this is what gives me optimism. There is some hope. And yes, and I am, I am inspired by this sense of hope. Not the sense of hope of something that will materialize when I'm dead. I'm talking about a sense of hope of something that will materialize here and now. Because if you look at it, yes, the technology, the scientific discoveries, they're not, the gains are not equally distributed. Fine. And even when you come into Nigeria, they're not distributed. The kids, let me tell you, they, when it comes to COVID-19 pandemic, the testing kids, when they arrive, they first of all go to the president's office. They're from the president to the senators, parliamentarians, the governors, and other, mm. before it gets down. So, so I, st I still see that same thing across the world. But what happens is that amidst all that, it is still as a result of human ingenuity in the course of time, that the medicine we have, that many people thought is for the rich. Today, people still have access to it. So there is this quest to keep hoping, to keep striving, to keep trying, to keep creating and recreating. It's all about innovation. It's all about that sense I told you I got from my parents. When you look at the world and say, okay, it is not perfect, it is not perfect right? How do I make it more perfect? How do I alter this situation? How do I satisfy this need? And in the course, somebody draws fulfillment from it. In other words, by being inventive and innovative, you make available something that is limited to few people. So, and that is why in the heart of those who draw and who try to build a base based on division, there are those who also draw from their ingenuity to knock down those fences as we saw in Germany and get people both in the East and West, both people deprived and those people who have abundance to meet together, to join, to embrace. So, this is what gives me hope, even amidst all equality, all inequality, division, and despair. Optimism, growth, freedom, fighting superstition, and fighting harm, and making progress. Leo Igwe, thank you for telling us what you believe. It's a pleasure. That was Leo Igwe telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. 
What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the first episode of the second season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk, and consider joining as a member to support that work. You can also purchase the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good retailers to find out more. <laughs>